I'm Kevin Power, and this is Sascapes, the podcast featuring stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. Welcome to episode 79 of Sascapes. This episode is sponsored by Heritage Saskatchewan. Visit heritagesask.ca and read about the brilliant work these folks are doing to keep Saskatchewan's heritage a living heritage. And of course, special thanks to Sask Culture for your ongoing support. You can hear all of the Sascapes podcast episodes for free on all of the usual podcasting sites, including iTunes, Google Play, Libsyn, and Stitcher Radio. If you want to recommend the podcast to other listeners, the easiest way to do that is to write a review in the iTunes or Google Play Store. The more reviews, the higher we move to the top of the recommended podcast list. And besides that, we just like to hear from you. I'm joined by two guests for this episode. Dale Jarvis is a storyteller, author, folklorist, and ICH development officer for the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Dale lives in Newfoundland and has been on a recent speaking and workshop tour in Saskatchewan. And wait till you hear what he transforms into at night. Joining Dale on the workshop tour is ICH Development Officer for Heritage Saskatchewan and former podcast guest Kristen Catherwood. But what is this ICH thing of which I speak? Good question. The answer to this and more is coming up in this conversation. Oh, and by the way, this episode is being released on International Podcast Day 2016. So, happy International Podcast Day to our sponsors, Heritage Saskatchewan, and to you, dear listener. Well, finally, I'm with Dale Jarvis. Dale, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. It's good to finally meet you. Um, We crossed paths once in Regina um, uh, earlier in the year, and I missed you by a day. So it's here, we to, here we are. Here we are. It's good to finally catch up with you. All right. You are, and I'm going to get this correct, the Intangible Cultural Heritage Development Officer for the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Yes. And then there's the storyteller, author, and folklorist, and all of that other fantastic stuff. And this is interesting. You are the first full-time, provincially funded folklorist position in Canada, ever. That's correct, yeah. And how long ago did that officially become a position? That started in 2008. Uh, We had had work that was being done on intangible cultural heritage as early as 2006, but the position became full-time in 2008. Right. Okay. And... Okay, I know that you did your um, Bachelor of Science in Anthropology and Archaeology. Um, by the way, were you ever out in the field digging? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. I worked uh, doing some field archaeology. I worked in southern Ontario, mostly on Iroquoian sites. 
but I worked in in Israel. I worked in South Carolina, Alabama, Texas. So uh, yeah, I did some interesting interesting archaeological work before I shifted over into folklore. Right, and you did your master's in folklore at Memorial. That's correct. Um, had that program been in existence for a long time before you came there? Yeah, the folklore program at Memorial has been around since the 1960s. And at the moment, it's one of the few Anglophone folklore programs in North America. It's certainly one of the only ones in Canada. And it uh, it was largely established to do work in Newfoundland. Yeah, there, there was an American folklorist, Herbert Halpert, who came up in the 1960s and uh, really saw in Newfoundland a lot of these old traditions that had started to fade out or die out in other places and recognized that there was an incredible potential to do work on, on folklore documentation in Newfoundland. So um, with that, the, uh, the folklore program started, and I came into the program there, the, the graduate-level program, in 1994. Okay. And now you're teaching there as well, are you, or are you? I help out. I'm a research associate in the Department of Folklore, which is a fancy way of saying I, I do things when they need things done and they don't right. have to give me a paycheck. That's, right. <laughs> that's what right. research associate right. means. <laughs> um, so I do help out. I do a lot of guest lecturing and helping out with their new cooperative public folklore program. Okay. Are there many folklore um, programs in universities across Canada that no. actually have degree granting rights? No, very few. There's a francophone program at Laval, mm-hmm. and I believe the University of Alberta has a Ukrainian folklore program. And then Memorial is, is I think, the only Anglophone university that has graduate and undergraduate uh, folklore degrees, uh, the only one in Canada. Okay. Um, that's what you do by day. Tell me what you do by night. By night, I transform into the uh, Reverend Thomas Wickham Jarvis Esquire, and I lead ghost tours through the downtown uh, St. John's area. And that's been something I've been doing since 1997. So I have a ghost tour company called the St. John's Haunted Hike, and we operate uh, three different types of uh, haunted experiences throughout the summer, which is a great way of kind of sharing local folklore and local history. How long have you been doing that? That started in 97, Um, so I've been doing it ever since, and I now have a number of guides that work for me as well. And is that your baby? Did you create that? Yeah, absolutely. I had been on a ghost tour in York in England, and I thought this would be perfect to do in in St. John's. And I came back to St. John's, where we have a lot of history, a lot of great folklore, and a great storytelling tradition, and pulled the tour together. Um, I was still a student at the time. I never thought that it would turn into a, a business, and, and it has. It's a firm part of the tourist offerings in St. John's now. So people are coming from all over the world. People come from all over the world and love stories. And it's a great way to see a bit of the city and hear some of its history and to explore places that you wouldn't get to see otherwise. So tell me, where did this interest start for you where were you as a as a kid were you were you fascinated by stories and digging things up and just the whole research of our past and preserving it where'd you get that from i always had an interest in in history and in archaeology i was telling a story earlier about how i had i have a very strong memory of going to the royal ontario museum in ontario i grew up in in southern ontario and uh, falling in love with the paleontology exhibit. There was a diorama of uh, paleontologists excavating a, a, a skeleton. And at five years of age, I thought, that's what I want to do. 
And then later, uh, the King Tutankhamun exhibit came to to Canada for the first time and went to Toronto. And that kind of blew my mind as a little kid. And so that, that was it. I was hooked by history and archaeology. Um, but also had a real passion for stories and for writing stories and performing stories. Um, and so those two interests kind of came together in folklore, that, that uh, love of things that come from the past, but then a love of expressive culture today as well. Right. And once you, I mean, I would assume that archaeology as a career um, has a bit more grounding to it than perhaps a career as a folklorist when one just sort of from an uneducated point of view looks at that kind of thing. You think, well, what are you going to do with a folklore degree? You very rarely see a job ad that says folklorist wanted. (laughs) Um, But what is interesting, I think uh, the Department of Folklore uh, at Memorial, it, it now has a cooperative uh, MA program where instead of doing a thesis, you do two uh, cooperative placements in museums or archives. I think folklorists are graduating with kind of an interesting set of skills. You know, we're we're conversant in going out into communities and figuring out what communities need and, and want and how they express themselves. Um, so I think there are actually, uh, there's potential for work for, for young folklorists to go out and, and doing work in economic development and with museums and in tourism. Uh, the skills that we have uh, about dealing with community are, are very transferable skills. That was going to lead me to my next question, so thanks for the uh, easy segue. <laughs> so how... Uh, that's how we connect folklore with community development. Because I, as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, where's the where's the fit? What's what's the need there when developing a community um, and and a culture in a community? Um, this is the broader topic of intangible cultural heritage and the need for that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of uh, a former intern of mine, a young folklorist who has graduated uh, with a degree in, in folklore from Memorial University, is uh, Crystal Bray, a young woman that I do work with. And she uh, graduated and started to do work with the local um, wooden boat museum. And so she does amazing work going out into communities and interviewing boat builders and learning about traditional boat building. And then they use the information that she collects and that other researchers are collecting for the museum to develop boat building programs. So they're running boat building courses. Uh, You can go and learn how to make a boat. Uh, And that um, is now a really popular thing in Newfoundland. We were really seeing a a return of interest to some of these old ways. And, and, And there are new uses for boats. People maybe aren't going out fishing in the way that they they used to but there's a great recreational industry around uh, wooden boats it's great wooden boat enthusiasts we are now seeing wooden punt races that are happening so we're seeing uh, wooden boats being built now on, on a scale that we haven't seen in the last two generations which i think is quite exciting and there is work for a folklorist there in in ensuring that that work happens in communities solely in in communities co- that are coastal or I mean, we do have a river here, so I suppose in theory <laughs> there is an opportunity for that. Yeah, but the, the interesting thing about, about a folklorist is that I always say to, to students is that you don't need to be the expert in, in a particular subject area. You know, those, those experts exist at the community level. What folklorists are experts at is eliciting the stories and drawing the stories out of people about the work that they do. Um, so my expertise is on community engagement and, uh, and documentation, so I can go into a, a, any kind of community and hopefully work with a group to develop a project that is meaningful and useful for them. Keeping the traditions alive, making them a living 
tradition, yeah? Yeah, that's absolutely it. We, we, we sometimes used to talk about uh, heritage preservation, as if heritage was something that needed to be pickled or sealed up in an archive or, or fossilized in some way. Um, people who work in intangible cultural heritage use the phrase safeguarding. Um, and it's more akin to that idea of ecological conservation, that we kind of manage the resource in a living way uh, and ensure that it is uh, viable and continues on and is of you know contemporary benefit to communities. If I asked you, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if I asked you to come up with a, a definition of ICH, intangible cultural heritage. What is that? It's informal knowledge that flows within a community. It's that simple. It's it's all those things that we um, have that define who we are as as a culture. So it's our songs, our stories, our traditions, our customs, the food we eat, the the games we play. Those kind of things that we might not be able to put in a museum or an archive, but which uh, form the basis of how we interact with one another. I've said, and uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but it it seems to be um, it's not about the thing, it's about the story behind the thing. Yeah, the story behind the thing or the knowledge that went into producing that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to hear, she'll be joining us soon, Kristen Catherwood, former podcast guest. Um, And one of the things I remember from our conversation was her saying, she's talked to people in rural communities and they say, oh, I I don't have culture, we don't have a museum here again gallery so i don't have any culture um so that kind of proves the point that it's not so much about the building and what the building houses as it is the the stories of one's community i work in communities that may not have heritage buildings as such quite often and i always say not every community has a heritage building but every community has a heritage we all have a a shared past and uh and contemporary expressions that are part of our heritage today is there an? I've had this conversation uh, not so long ago with somebody. So you tell me your thoughts on this. Is there a negative connotation to the word folklore within the within the ICH community? I think sometimes people use the word folklore uh, almost to refer to something that isn't true. You say, "Oh, that's just old folklore." Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we use the phrase intangible cultural heritage, because it doesn't come with that, that type of negative connotation. In other places, in Europe, for example, folklore specifically means folk dancing or folk music. So again, uh, this term of intangible cultural heritage, while it might be a bit unwieldy uh, at first, is a bit more inclusive than folklore. Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. 
I'm looking down at my notes here. What's the difference then between a long-form folk tale and a fairy tale? And are there fairy tales that are true? All fairy tales are true. Okay. (laughs) And as Kristen always uses in her example, it's not really so much about whether it's true or not? No. And, uh, you know, I think that's where folklorists are different from oral historians. You know, oral historians like to get at at kind of truth. We want to know about things that happened in the past. Uh, I think people... Uh, tell stories for a, a whole variety of meanings. So as a folklorist, I'm more interested in the kind of the context and the meanings behind the stories and why people choose to tell those types of stories. So if someone tells me um, uh, a contemporary legend, an urban legend about, um, y- you know, if uh, about how the dead cats are being used at the local Chinese restaurant, that's an urban legend that pops up, <laughs> pops up from, from time to time. You know, I think that says more about you know how we perceive immigration or how we perceive people who are different then then it is about whether or not there are actually cats in the chinese food you know right. the, the the legends that we choose the myths that we tell uh express truths about ourselves so like i said stories are true on a variety of levels um I'll try not to make this a Nova Scotia podcast, though it will be certainly tempting. Um, I am um, originally from Nova Scotia, so I consider you a, a transplant to the Atlantic provinces. Um, they don't call it the Maritimes anymore. They call it the Atlantic, Atlantic provinces. Atlantic provinces, yeah, because Newfoundlanders and Labradorians really don't see themselves as being part of the Maritimes. They're definitely part of the Atlantic uh, region, but they're not Maritimers at all. Right. Well, if somebody were to ask me why I take an interest in folklore, um, it is because of where I was born. I just associate that entire region of the country with just these amazing tall tales and haunted houses that I remember going to Halliburton House um, um, outside of Halifax and, and as a kid being both half terrified and both fascinated that there may actually be a ghost and the tale of Evangeline, you know, looking out over the ocean, all of those things. And so I just... I just identify the whole subject of folklore with the Atlantic region, although I know it's it's not it's universal. Um, but I just love that part of of our country. You know, we we are seeing in Canada the the, the places that are doing work on intangible cultural heritage. Uh, starting out, it was provinces like. Newfoundland and Labrador and Quebec that really embraced this idea very, very quickly because we recognize that culture is a part of who we are, we, that we have a very distinct cultural identity. Places like Cape Breton uh, are also very quick. Like Cape Breton's been very involved in the work of intangible cultural heritage. It's interesting to be here now in Saskatchewan and to see that, that we are seeing ICH kind of becoming more and more important, the study of ICH and the safeguarding of ICH being, becoming more important. And, and maybe it is because we are in these regions that have a strong regional identity that that folklore and ICH matter to people it's part of who we are it's an easy sell in right. in some of these places right um, okay and I'll also try not to make this a haunted um, story uh, podcast as well tempting as it may be oh but first of all you do have a podcast yourself right I do yeah we started a podcast uh, in St. John's called Living Heritage, right. where we interview people who are engaged in the business of, of safeguarding cultural heritage. So um, we interview heritage professionals who are doing work in museums and archives or who are folklorists or ethnomusicologists or dance scholars. But then we also interview p- 
people who are tradition bearers. So people who have memories or stories of particular communities or, or regions. And it's been a great way to kind of share uh, information about the work that we do. Is that in connection with community radio there? Yeah. We have a really great partnership with uh, CHMR Radio, which is the campus radio station at Memorial University. So the show is recorded uh, on campus uh, in studio at CHMR, and it's broadcast as, as part of the, the CHMR um, regular radio broadcasting on Thursdays and Saturdays. Uh, and then once it's been on CHMR, then we podcast it, and it goes out on iTunes around the world. Okay, we'll talk about why you are here in Saskatchewan when um, Kristen joins us, um, because the two of you are on the same track right now. Um, tell me about Jack the Lantern in, in Shoe Cove Bite. Okay, Jack the Lantern is um, is a local uh, expression. Sometimes, uh, and, and there's a variety of ways that the the phrase can be heard. Jackie Lantern is the other common one, or Jack O' Lantern. Uh, when Newfoundlanders talk about Jack O' Lantern, um, it's not the Halloween uh, pumpkin carved pumpkin. A Jackie Lantern or Jack the Lantern is a type of supernatural figure that appears as a ball of light. Um, and sometimes appears over water, sometimes appears over land, and can behave in a number of different ways. Uh, so the story from Shoe Cove Bite, as example, as an example, is a is a water based uh, light that will appear and lead people possibly into danger, sometimes even to safety. Um, but it is a recurring um, it's a recurring theme in Newfoundland folklore. Uh, jack o' lantern stories really fascinate me because the jack o' lantern occupies this really interesting middle ground between uh, a fairy story, like a, a fairy creature, and, or a ghost. It's unclear as to what exactly a Jack the Lantern is. My late father-in-law, George Jones, met a Jackie Lantern uh, in the community of Brigus in Conception Bay. He was walking down the road, and uh, what he called a Jackie Lantern kind of appeared before him and a friend, and uh, kind of they followed it down the road for a while before it hopped over a fence. And when I asked him what the Jackie Lantern looked like, he said, oh, it was a little fella, a little fella, a little ball of light. And later, research revealed to me that little fella is actually one of these phrases that people use um, as a euphemism for fairies. People quite often don't want to talk about fairies. They'll use other words like the good people or the little people to talk about them. Little fella is a phrase from um, the West Country of England that has been transplanted uh, into Newfoundland. So stories like um, Jack the Lantern and Shoe Cove Bite uh, are a pretty good example of how intangible cultural heritage, our storytelling traditions and our knowledge about, you know, weather lights and weather patterns still continue to, to live. People still tell these types of stories in Newfoundland. It, one of the great things about being a folklorist in Newfoundland is there's no shortage of stories. Right, no kidding. And do they claim that they still see this light? Um, the Shoe Cove Bite one, I'm not exactly certain, but people still tell stories about weather lights and uh, uh, jackie lantern stories. Um, another very, very common story in Labrador is this story about Smoker, which is kind of a, a related type of legend. Uh, where a, a figure is seen driving a dog team in a, in a blizzard and quite often will lead someone out of a blizzard to safety. Uh, 
Um, and this is an example of a very old legend in Labrador that continues to be reported. People still tell those stories and people still claim to see old smoker. Um, and what is interesting now is that the legend has adapted and has become more and more current. And, and some people have reported seeing uh, old smoker driving a snowmobile now instead of dri- driving, <laughs> driving a dog. Too. They've updated, they, the, story. updated the story. Right. Yeah. Have you yourself seen any of these aberrations? Or? You know, I, I am at heart a bit of a skeptic. Okay. And I, I'm fascinated by the stories. I'm not a paranormal investigator in any way. Um, but I always tell people that I do live in a haunted house in St. John's. There's, uh, I live in a house that has multiple spirit stories associated with it. And uh, one of the, the things that I have experienced in the house is a black cat. I've seen a black cat out of the corner of my eye, and I felt a cat brush up against my leg in the way that a cat will. And, uh, and there, is no, uh, there is no cat there when one goes looking for it. A few years ago, we had a woman come to our storytelling festival, a, a woman by the name of Anne Farrell from, uh, from Ireland, who's a storyteller and a bit of a white witch, I guess you could say. And I was telling her the stories that were associated with my house and how I personally had experienced this ghost cat. And she looked at me quite seriously and said, oh, yes, and his name is Septimus. <laughs> so, so apparently that's that's the story for my house wow tell septimus not to go anywhere <laughs> near the chinese restaurant yeah. <laughs> um all right the the mummers are also a really big deal especially in st john's yeah. um and you have this whole mummers festival that happens there so tell me a bit about the mummers for those who don't know what a mummer is, uh, a mummer is a type of character that appears during the 12 days of Christmas, usually. Uh, it's a disguised figure. It's a house-to-house visiting tradition in, in one of its forms where you will disguise yourself, hide your face, hide your body, hide your voice, uh, and then go to a neighboring house. And it's, there's a bit of a guessing game involved. They try to guess which of their neighbors is under all these misshapen uh, clothes, and, and then you get a drink and you go on to the next house and this is a tradition that that uh, is then repeated over the 12 days of christmas um it's an old tradition it's not specifically a newfoundland tradition there are variants of it uh, throughout uh, northern europe and even here um in the prairies there are variants of this type of tradition in other parts of the world um but it was a, a tradition that was very very popular in newfoundland the combination of disguise and drink often led to violence in Newfoundland. And in the 1860s, the tradition was actually banned. Uh, mummering was banned in Newfoundland, which had the effect of, of um, causing it to die out in the urban centers, but it persisted in the outport communities where there wasn't a police force quite often. Um, and it, it is a tradition that has undergone periods of revival and decline um, and when we started the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office, we wanted to create a festival around some kind of tradition that wasn't music or dance. We had lots of music and dance festivals. We wanted to create a festival around some other aspect of, of our traditions. Um, and it, it worked out that uh, December was a good time to do it. So we created a, a Mummers Festival and a Mummers Parade where people could experience this tradition and be participants in that tradition. Um, and it has grown to be an incredible incredibly popular and colorful part of uh, the contemporary Christmas traditions in, in St. John's and has reintroduced mummering to that next generation uh, of young Newfoundlanders. Why does that tradition sound eerily like what we do at Halloween? 
Yeah, there's this tradition in Saskatchewan that I'm sure Kristen can talk about trick or trick or drinking, um, and it and it it is one of these traditions that has come from other places and that has found different expressions in different areas. You know, we we call it mummering or jannying in in Newfoundland in the Acadian communities. There is um, a tradition called Mikarem. In French Canadian traditions, there's a Lenten tradition of Carnival. Um, in um, in very German communities in Nova Scotia and Lunenburg County, there is a tradition called Belschnickling, which was a German tradition where people would dress up in furs and go from house to house at oh. Christmas time. Um, so this is an, an an ancient European tradition that has been brought to the New World, and that you know has evolved in different ways in different locations. As a folklorist, again, I'm really interested in those variants. You know how some things turned into a Halloween uh, tradition here in Saskatchewan one that turned into a, a kind of a wild man tradition in German communities or, or a, you know, this kind of misshapen cross-dressing figure of mummers in, in, in Newfoundland. Right. Except Halloween, as I know it, came sort of the All Souls Day. Um, uh, it's all connected sort of in Britain. They do Guy Fawkes around that time. Yeah, as well. there's a whole series of, of traditions that Start kind of end of November uh, or beginning of end of end of October into the beginning of November, and then last right into kind of um, the the Lenten season. Um, this, these kind of year end traditions of of mischief. Um, people might know the tradition around Halloween of Devil's Night, which is the night before Halloween, where you right. play tricks on people. Or that that uh, that tradition of trick or treating, people forget that the trick part is actually a really important part of, of Halloween traditions. Um, in Newfoundland, there was what would be called a mischief night or mischief week in certain locations that would sort of begin around Halloween and continue right up until Guy Fifth's night, uh, Guy Fox night on November 5th, Bonfire night. It was what would be called in Newfoundland, which is a big bonfire tradition. Um, there are other traditions in Newfoundland. There's a tradition called darbying in yeah. certain communities, where where uh, people would burn cork and then blacken their faces. So one of the, again, one of these kind of fire related traditions that would happen at year end, and it's all part of a cycle of death and rebirth in the end of one year and an, an upending of tradition, a time of misrule, and then a restart, a reboot of the of the year after New Year. It seems like there. I, I mean, I was aware that it kind of disappeared for a while, except in the in the backwoods as as it were but uh, i would have thought that, that it discontinued because it seems rather pagan in the face of an otherwise christian holiday when we think of christmas yeah christmas is a very strange tradition when we start to pull it out like pull it apart many of our christmas traditions are pagan traditions the yule log the christmas tree santa claus himself a lot of these traditions have have very deep uh, pagan roots that 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 uh, early Christian missionaries kind of um, imposed Christianity over top of these things. And they knew that it would be impossible to get rid of these old Germanic or Saxon or pagan traditions. And so they kind of put Christianity on top of it. So we think of, you know, the Christmas tree as being somehow a Christian symbol, but it's really this old Germanic symbol of fertility. Right. Okay. At this point, um, I'm going to uh, have Christian Catherwood join us. Kristen Catherwood, nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Kevin, and in person this time, because I remember last time it was over the phone. We so. were. It's much easier to record you in person. Yes. Great. So, um, uh, Kristen, Dale, Dale, Kristen, apparently you know each oh, other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
much about you. Right. Okay. How did you first meet Dale? Actually, I think the first time I ever met Dale, I was actually trying to remember that, was he came into my very first week of studying folklore, my master's degree at Memorial University of Newfoundland, St. John's. And he came in to just, I think, introduce us to the concept of intangible cultural heritage. And then I remember going on his haunted hike. um, And I was very interested in that because I had my own ghost tour back home in rural Saskatchewan. So I was sort of comparing and seeing which one was better. And thus began our competition that is ongoing to this day. (laughs) Um, But anyway, and then after that, I was lucky enough when I began my graduate program that we had a three-week field school to learn basically how to do folklore in this rural fishing community called Keels in the Bonavista Peninsula. And uh, Dale came and he talked to us about ICH and I can't exactly remember. It's one of those things where, um, you know, you can't remember, you can't sort out exactly what happened when because I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Dale since and um, spent a lot of time in Newfoundland, various projects that were going on. I was lucky enough to kind of be out in rural Outport, Newfoundland with Dale a few times. And so it's been neat to sort of, it sort of feels like full circle where now he's here in my turf, you know, and so it's been cool to to spend that time with him here because it's been about four years, I guess, that I've known Dale. And he's really, a, he is a mentor to me for sure and sure. huge inspiration. Just to remind people that are listening, you are the Intangible Cultural Heritage Officer at Heritage Saskatchewan. That's right. Yeah. Right. So the title that was filched from our Newfoundland counterpart there. So, right. Yeah. Um, so either of you can chime in at this point. Um, what you all doing in Saskatchewan? Well, Kristen, you live here, but uh, together, what are you doing in uh, Saskatchewan uh, immediately? Well, um, I guess my position is new. I just began um, just at the end of last year. And the whole concept of ICH, Intangible Cultural Heritage, is new in the province of Saskatchewan. And so I've been, um, as we've been sort of working on the process of what exactly, what kind of work are we going to do in Heritage Saskatchewan? What are we going to do with intangible cultural heritage? Um, We thought it'd be really useful to learn from a pro like Dale and to see, um, to learn from him and to bring him out here and and share his knowledge with us. And so we brought him out for this whirlwind 10-day sort of road trip where he's been offering um, two-day workshops in three different communities, Indian Head, Swift Current, and now Wanuskewin here in Saskatoon, and doing some public lectures and doing things like this where we're going out and and speaking to various groups and and organizations about what intangible cultural heritage is and how we can be using it to uh, enrich our communities here in Saskatchewan. So what have you seen? What are you hearing from people? What interesting stories do you have from the road so far? Mm, what have, well, we've been learning a lot about Saskatchewan food. I'll let Dale maybe speak because he's, you know, he's the one who's kind of learning about some of the stuff for the first time. Okay. So. You, haven't had, you haven't had a fall supper yet? I think or foul really supper. Foul supper. supper. Yeah. So, so, yeah, we're learning about all these interesting things. One of the things that I do to start the workshops is I ask people to come and talk about a food tradition. Uh, it's, I find it's a good way to get people thinking about their own personal connection to culture. Everyone eats food, and, and food has a lot of meaning in terms of our community and our families and our history. So lots of people have been coming and talking about uh, lutefisk and lefse and, and fowl suppers and borscht and uh, local Chinese restaurants in small towns. And it's, it's been a great uh, way for people to introduce themselves and talk about their family backgrounds. 
Um, we've done two workshops so far, one in Indian Head and one in Swift Current, and they've both been very different. People talking about different aspects of, of tradition in those places. And so, you know, we were hearing about all kinds of interesting um, ranch-based tradition, ranching and rodeo traditions, um, different uh, ethnic traditions, Métis traditions. Um, in Indian Head, we had a tr- we had a, a conversation about weather vanes and weather vanes on buildings, and, and um, we got a great tour of the local theater, uh, which has been restored in Indian Head, and people were telling ghost stories about the building and stories about someone who built a plane, yeah, an airplane, in the basement of the of the theater. Stories about, uh, correct me on the, the phrase of this, box socials. Box socials. Box socials, which the church, maybe Kristen can explain. Yeah, box right. social is. I'm puzzled, Kevin, and fascinated. I'm just so excited to talk about box socials now with your face. You're just, <laughs> tell me all about it. Uh-huh. Um, box socials were this tradition of... Um, you would have like a lunch or a, a dance basically and young women would make a lunch and they would put it in a box and they would decorate the box. And then at a certain hour at this social, they would auction off these lunch boxes. And so these young bachelors would, maybe not always bachelors, but men would buy the box and then you would find out after you bought the box, you'd open it up and find out who had made it. And then you would actually share the contents of the lunch box with the young lady, the lady who made it. Um, and that, at least that's the way I know it from my community. Maybe other communities have a different definition of box social. But it was kind of, I think, a matchmaking sort of tool, but maybe also sometimes used as a fundraiser for various community events. Uh, but I, I heard, I've heard stories from my own community about, you know, how young ladies, perhaps if they had, you know, a beau or someone who was courting them, they'd make sure to give him a little hint before the auction, like look for the blue bow or something like that so that they'd know which box to, to, uh, to bid on and so that they could have lunch with the lady of their, of their dreams. So it was always food in the box. As far as I know. Yeah. Well, because as the saying is the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. stomach, Yeah. So, right. Right. So the woman got to express her creativity in the decoration, but also show off her, um, skill at cooking and perhaps in preparing dainties, which is a word that we've been coming across. Have you not heard that before? I have, but some people in other parts of the world, for them, dainty means something quite different than it means here in Saskatchewan, which is, of course, our our squares, Mm -hmm. except we've also heard that sometimes they're called slice. So we're learning about these different terms that people use to describe the same thing, Mm -hmm. but they use a different word to, to define it, and so... Dainties is one of those ones we've been discussing. A, a woman came to our workshop in Swift Current and said that when she had moved into the community, they'd been talking about dainties and slice. Mm-hmm. And for her, a slice was a, a loaf, like slices that you would cut off a loaf. But she found that in that community, the local terminology um, was about uh, squares that had been sliced out of a pan. So oh, in, right. in that community, slice had a very, very specific meaning. Um, we also had a great, you know, discussion around uh, words related to geographical landforms, uh, words that are very Saskatchewan specific in some ways. Words like uh, coulee or slough, which if you were using those words on the east coast, those words wouldn't mean Not anything, at anything at all. No. 
Um, so that's that's a really interesting example of how about how traditions are linked. You know, t- traditions about land use and land knowledge and um, agriculture and our linguistic traditions that they're all kind of part and parcel of our intangible cultural heritage. Did you visit a Chinese restaurant in either? Oh, yes. You did, yes, of course. Did. I just think I, I would love to do an entire podcast series all just on, like, travel through the province and do all the Chinese restaurants. I want you to do that. It's fascinating. <laughs> and I'll, they're, they're I'll tell so, the grant people that. <laughs> please do. And they're a very important part of our communities in Saskatchewan. I mean, yeah. everyone knows every small town at one point had a Chinese restaurant, and many of them are continuing on to this day. And there's one in Outlook this summer earlier. Um, some of my colleagues and I went through Outlook, and I don't know maybe how many people it has, maybe a thousand. And there's three active Chinese restaurants on Main Street. You know, two of them are right next to each other, and often they're they're generational. They're handed down through the family, or perhaps handed down through sort of someone back home who they're looking to come to Canada, so they get hooked up with a restaurant that they'll they'll take over. And you go in, and often the decor is very much um, heritage. It's reminiscent of an earlier era. And the food that's served, the recipes that are served often continue on, even if it changes hands. And just the the kind of tradition of like the Sunday smorg, you know, going yeah. to Sunday smorg and and uh, even not just Chinese food, but even um, sometimes it was a treat. Like if you were from the farm, you were a farm kid, you go into town maybe once a month and you might have like a hot beef sandwich at the local Chinese restaurant. And that was a real treat. So they're important part of our, our communities and the and the, the families that run ran them and continue to do so important part of the business community and we just it's one of those things we take for granted and often intangible cultural heritage or folklore whatever term you want to use it is that stuff in our daily life that we just take for granted and yet it's the very stuff that makes us who we are yeah I love that the, the all the Chinese restaurants always have the back pages, the Canadiana menu, you know, yeah. with the burger and the fries and yeah. the fish and chips. You know? Western cuisine. <laughs> yeah. Kristen was telling a story about her. Uh, she took a friend to a local Chinese restaurant and the soup of the day was borscht. At yeah. the, at the <laughs> and she was actually from Nova Scotia, right. Kevin, and she just oh. thought she couldn't have had a more Saskatchewan experience if she tried to have borscht, borscht as the appetizer. Chinese the Chinese restaurant, the BC Cafe in Maple Creek, which has been there for, you know, eons and... To- Today we had another kind of interesting experience. We went for lunch at a Mennonite restaurant mm-hmm. here, here the Tant Maria, Tant Maria uh, Mennonite yeah, yeah, yeah. restaurant. Oh yeah, and all the staff was Chinese. So you know it works. It works both ways. You know, and it's interesting that that restaurants and food are these places where cultures kind of meld and come together. I remember talking to someone from Alberta, uh, the Alberta Museum. They had done a project on Chinese restaurants in Alberta, rural Chinese restaurants in Alberta. And they found that one of the interesting things that was happening was that uh, these are sometimes now second and third generation owned. And a lot of the uh, new generation uh, of immigrants, they don't want to work in Chinese restaurants. They want to go have, you know, a job, you know, a government job or become a doctor, or become a lawyer or work on the farm or whatever. And so they're, they're finding new buyers. And quite often new buyers for Chinese restaurants in Alberta were uh, new immigrant Chinese who are coming from Hong Kong or, or from, from China um, who had to be taught how to make Canadian Chinese food. That the, right. these things like egg rolls and yeah. sweet and sour chicken was uh, you know completely foreign to them. And that's what, what we think of an inner rural context is Chinese food being right. about. But right. for them it was this brand new, brand new thing. I, so I love that, uh, how traditions change and flow. And, and suit the place that they're the place, in. Yeah. And that's what, for me, I, I always bring back in in my 
definition or talking about intangible cultural heritage is this place and where we are and who we are within that place and how, how yes, exactly traditions change. And, and another place that we went that we made sure to take Dale was the Ukrainian co-op in, in Regina and talking about um, like food and how, you know, um, say people who are coming from the Ukraine today, they might see that the food that we're eating in Saskatchewan and say, that's not really Ukrainian food because it might have changed in the Ukraine. And yet here it's sort of, it's, it's retained some of those elements of like a hundred years ago when they came, but then it's also, we were talking about like Saskatoon berry pierogies and how that's a Saskatchewan thing. You can't probably get a Saskatoon berry pierogi in the Ukraine, right? But that's a very, it's Ukrainian Saskatchewan. It's very localized to this particular part of the world. So you've been eating your way through Saskatchewan. Essentially, yeah. It's a food tour of Saskatchewan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How have people been responding to your to your workshops? I mean, you're right. Food can be the great unifier, um, but outside of that, are they getting it? I think so. I mean, our feedback has been really positive. And, and one woman came up to me after our, our workshop in Indian Head. She said, "This has just been one of the best things ever. These wow. past two days have just been so interesting." And she was so excited, and and that's really great to see. And so I think in that moment, yes, those people they're getting it. And it doesn't take long for people to get it. When I'm doing my own workshops throughout the province, and I know Dale sees this too in Newfoundland, you go out and at first, yes, this term ICH and tangible cultural heritage. What is that? But soon enough, people start realizing, oh, it's this, and it's this, and it's that, and it's everything that I've always just been doing my whole life and never really thought about in a concrete way before. And now we are, and we're giving it this value, you know, that it, that it should have, because it is who we are. And and as Dale was mentioning earlier when you were speaking to him about, um, you know, community development and how these things that we just take for granted in our everyday lives can be really powerful tools in helping to create healthier and more sustainable communities. What I find interesting is that it truly is a way to unplug from this complete techno-driven society that we have where you don't have to be on Facebook to talk about ICH. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to look up Wikipedia to, to talk about your family stories and your family history. And it, so it really does take us back to this, that basic um, for the lack of a better word, primal desire to pass on the 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 stories of our heritage. Yes, and to connect. I mean, humans, we, we, we want to connect. We need to connect with other people. We need to have communities. And that's part of the reason um, why this UNESCO convention was created, for the safeguarding of intangible cultural heritage, because it's a human, our natural sort of instinct is to pass our knowledge on. But in our world now, in the past 100 years, it's changed so much in the technology that we use that this natural rhythm of, of transmission has been somewhat interrupted. And so this is where people like Dale and I come in and we're trying to help communities find ways to create opportunities for that natural transmission to continue on, for people to continue connecting and talking to each other and and transferring this knowledge, this local knowledge, to go back to the, the definition Dale used earlier about what intangible cultural heritage or folklore actually is. Right, right. Um, okay, I'm going to uh, focus in on you for a second here. Kristen, I'm going to put you on the spot. Going back to the theme of ghost stories, (laughs) but I've been reading some of your blogs, and I was quite touched by um, one of your entries, so I'd like you to tell me about Andy. Andy. Oh, gosh. Okay. Andrew Signaski, right? He is a poet, was a poet from Wood Mountain, 
and uh, born and raised and of Ukrainian stock. And Wood Mountain, Saskatchewan, population 21 as of last year, is one of my favorite places in the entire world. It's, it's, a very, it's a very special spot to me in Saskatchewan. It's in the deep south of Saskatchewan. I've spent a lot of time there. And it was when I first visited the Rodeo Ranch Museum in Wood Mountain several years ago, and I heard about this poet, Andrew Signaski, but they didn't have any of his poems in print, that, at, or they didn't have any copies of his poetry. And I thought, okay, you know, and, and just went on with my life. And then I saw this film that the National Film Board made called Wood Mountain Poems about Andrew Signaski, and it was just, it was full of folklore. It was made in the 70s, and it just absolutely struck a chord with me, and I thought, I have to read this poetry. And so I managed to track it down online, you know, secondhand bookstores, and, and got these copies of this poetry and read it. And, and I just think, you know, I just really connected with that poetry because um, I like the way he writes. I like that we come from a similar part of the province, so the things that he's writing about connect with me very deeply. And also that his poetry is full of actual, it's folklore. It's the, it's the local um, cultural heritage of these people he grew up with, these Romanians and Ukrainians, and also the, the Lakota Sioux, the, the remnants of Sitting Bull's followers who stayed in that area, who are now the people of the Wood Mountain First Nation, and the Métis, and these, this rich cultural um, tapestry that is in this area. And so I just, he's become, I guess, sort of a... I don't know how to what I would call him almost a muse or something, you mm. know. And he's passed away now. He passed mm-hmm. away in 2012, mm-hmm. you know. But um, yeah, his poetry's just been it's been very important to me personally as a writer, but also as a folklorist because I feel that his poetry is a is a source of folkloric material. So it was a metaphor when you wrote in your blog about um, uh, going there to look for his, his ghost. ghost. More that more that the, the footprint that he left in the it, area. It was, and that's also a play on the title of one of his works of poetry, which is called The Ghosts Call You Poor. And um, basically it's kind of referencing how these people who came, because in Wood Mountain there's a real um, or at least when he was living and there still is a real fascination with the past with the past like these grand figures like sitting bull and jean-louis Legare and and um james walsh of the north south mounted police and all of these legends and stories and and um sort of the sort of saying like the ghosts these these people from the past saying that you now living in this modern era at least the way i interpret it, it's like you're poor now because you've missed this grand time or something so anyway it's sort of and it's now i 40 years after Andy wrote his poetry, you know, he had access to all of these people and this material and this oral tradition that now it still exists, but less than it did. And so it's like, now I'm the one who's poor because I don't have the access to that material that he did. So anyway, that's just my, that's my interpretation as kind of a writer and as someone reading his poetry sort of separately from my being a folk Right. Person. You have um, in, in that blog um, a quote from him, I believe, only in things that last um, forever. Um, which really struck a chord for you. I love that you wrote it. It's as if he knew me. Yeah, and that's just coming from my personal background, which I know is what led me into this field of folklore in a very sort of twisting and turning way. I didn't know what folklore was until I showed up in Newfoundland and people like Dale told me what it was. I just kind of was led there. I, I spoke of that in my last podcast interview with you, but that... That line, I believe only in things lasting forever, struck with me basically because growing up in rural Saskatchewan, you hear all the time and you see around you all the time decline. 
And one of my friends, an artist, said to me, I've been watching Saskatchewan towns die since the day I was born. You know, like we're just constantly surrounded by old abandoned homesteads and things that used to be and things that were much less even of of the thousands of years of of, thing, of stories that we'll never know about of the First Nations people, the Indigenous peoples who came before us, this landscape that's just sort of littered with the remnants of, of a previous time and this constant fear, too, that maybe one day we'll lose all this. Maybe our towns will die. Maybe we won't be able to farm here. Maybe one day this place that is so meaningful to me, my home, won't exist anymore because the people who came before me, it doesn't exist for them anymore, right? And so I think there's that fear, I think, for some a lot of people who grew up in rural Saskatchewan of kind of, you know, maybe a little bit of, of a shame of what of, of how we came to occupy this place and knowing that in the way that we occupy it, we ended an entire way of life for the people who were here before us. Right. And maybe could that happen to us too? At least right. that's how for me. And so you, that fear of what if, and the world that's changing so fast and people like my dad talking about how things have changed in his life and even things, how they've changed in my life. I was telling Dale when he was here, we toured an elevator. I remember driving in an elevator with my dad and dumping grain in our local town, Ceylon, my brother, who's eight years younger than me, has no memory of that because by the time he was old enough to drive with dad in the grain truck, the elevator in Ceylon was gone. And so we see this constant sort of loss of things. And so I guess that line struck with me because it's sort of like I wish that these things that matter so much that we could keep them. And that's part of what my work is now is that we can't necessarily keep all the elevators, but we can talk about why are they important to us? What is it about them that's important to us? And how can we work with communities to, as, as Dale was talking about, not preserve things like pickle them, but actually help them continue to live in the present. Right, because we have a history for a long time of preserving the thing, mm-hmm. right? But it's the intangible that you're worried about slipping away. Yeah, it's the it's the connections to place. It's the the knowledge contained within a place. Mm-hmm. And that that knowledge encompasses so many things from from gart from well to go back to the pickling <laughs> metaphor like if you're growing your garden how do you grow a garden here what cucumbers should you grow what are the best cucumbers to grow in this area cuz right. some are better than others right. what are the best ones to grow for pickling versus eating even and once you're making those pickles how do you make those pickles you know are you making them with your vinegar brine or are you kind of making the sort of uh, salty pickles the uh, like the like kosher fermented pickles, you know, and how do you do that? What's the actual process of doing that? Where do you get your jars from? All of these little things that sort of maybe we take for granted or think are simple now, but maybe in the future people won't have no idea how to do that kind of stuff. And if this is our job right now is to identify those things that maybe it is pickles in our community, maybe it's something else that we consider important knowledge that we don't want to lose. So how can we help that process of transmission of, of, learn, of people learning that knowledge? because it matters in their in their local place. Right. Can it, correct me if I'm wrong, did you say earlier that until you met Dale you had not heard the term folklore? No, I had heard the term but I didn't know what it meant in terms of like of a whole academic discipline or that oh, okay. it was something you could really study. In fact, folklore to me was sort of what we were talking about earlier with oh that's old wives tales or that's old folklore, but it was also, you know, it's a word that appealed to me as someone who's a writer like Oh, this kind of like folklore. Like, what is it? It's like this mysterious kind of material. I didn't quite understand. Um, but anyway, and then I found out what it actually entailed, and I thought, oh, that's exactly what I've always been interested in. I just didn't know there was a way you could actually study it. 
right. or you know make a living working with this kind of material. So, are you in fact offering some kind of ghost tour? Oh yes, um, the haunted history tour in Radville has been. This is let's see. I started in the summer of 2012, so I guess this was my fifth summer doing it. And I actually started before I ever met Dale Jarvis or went on the haunted hike. It was something I did before I even knew, before I had started my folklore. It was actually my last year before I moved to Newfoundland. I was a summer student in Radville, and I was just looking for things that we could be doing to try and get more... I was thinking at the time specifically younger people coming to, say, our museum and our heritage walking tour. And I had been on ghost tours in other cities before, and I had just thought, I know that there's ghost stories in Radville, and just started going out and collecting them, and then collecting other things. Like, it's not just about ghosts, it's also about some of the darker things in Radville's past, like the Ku Klux Klan and rum running and sort of things like that, and brought them together in this this walking tour, guided walking tour, I wear a costume, you know, it's... Yeah, speaking of losing things... This hospital, which was so important in the in the town of Radville, I mean, so many people were born there, died there, worked there over the years, and it was torn down because we were lucky enough to we have a brand new hospital, which was very much needed, but we lost the old building. And yet that had been one of the main stops on my haunted history tour. And in fact, when they were tearing that building down, people said, oh, you won't be able to have your tour anymore because of that. And I said, well, actually, this is why stories are important because that building's gone. But we can still talk about it because we have all these stories from it. So we still, on the tour, we go and stand on the site of where that building used to be, which if you drove through town, you would have no idea that there used to be a hospital standing there. But before it was torn down, we were lucky enough that this local paranormal investigative team, the Knights of the Dark on Access, they came and they shot a couple of episodes in the hospital there so yeah do we have any history of of mummers events in this province or currently anything uh no i don't know about events but in terms of the mummering like the practice that dale mm-hmm. was talking about earlier of like jannying which yeah. i know is a term that sometimes has been used in saskatchewan right. like uh, trick or drinking that's I, that happens in my town in Radville. And so um, I was familiar with that. And I remember going and sitting in folklore courses in Newfoundland and being told, like learning about what mummering was and thinking, we have that in Saskatchewan. We just do it at Halloween. But it's the same concept of getting dressed up, going into your, your, your neighbor's home, and they're trying to guess who you are. And there's a lot of, you know, it's alcohols involved. And uh, yeah, so it's <laughs> the same kind of thing. It's just at a different time of year. Right. Has a little different and not as long of a tradition as it has been in Newfoundland, obviously, but it's it's made its way out to the prairies as well. Right. I'm fascinated by haunted stories. <laughs> um, Dale, uh, you're lecturing tomorrow here at the U of S., um, you have to say, did you know that, or am yes, I just uh, bringing this on you now? <laughs> um, so, what's what's the goal in this lecture? What's the theme? The theme is on intangible cultural heritage, just to give people an introduction to what it's all about, and some colorful examples of things that we're doing in Newfoundland to safeguard traditions. We're doing a two-day workshop in Wanuskewin on intangible cultural heritage. Again, what it is and how you start to identify it in your community and how you start to elicit stories from your community through community mapping projects and how you turn those ideas about heritage into tangible projects for your community. Right. And then you fly back. And then I'm back to Newfoundland. And I I fly back to Newfoundland. And then immediately once I get back, we're right into... 
I fly back to Newfoundland and we're right into our big wooden boat conference. So uh, I'm going to be face and eyes into it, as they say in Newfoundland, and we'll be uh, doing some work. We have people coming up from the United States who are running wooden boat projects with inner city kids, teaching kids boat building skills to teach them confidence and carpentry skills. We've got people coming up from um, the American Folklife Center. We have people coming from Scotland talking about building boats for community boat races in Scotland. I'll be doing some re- recordings for podcasting and working with local youth to facilitate uh, seniors with sessions with seniors in the community about boats and stories about boats and how we might use boats in in communities. Uh, so it's going to be a, a packed few days when I when I get back. Um, and then I'm off uh, to various places. I'm heading off to New Brunswick. Uh, where they're starting to develop an interest in developing policies around safeguarding intangible cultural heritage there. So I'm off to talk to the New Brunswick people about the work that's probably been happening here in Saskatchewan and the work that I'm doing in Newfoundland and Labrador. And then you've got the Mummers Festival at the end of November into the early-ish, around yeah. December the 10th or something? The Mummers Festival in Newfoundland starts in uh, December, around the first oh. week of December. And I think the 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 festival uh, usually runs a couple weeks and it culminates in a in a parade that happens just before Christmas. And if people want more information on that, they can go to mummersfestival.ca and see all the fabulous stuff that we're doing with Mummers in Newfoundland. What's the ugly stick? An ugly stick is a percussion instrument. It's a, it's a stick, usually an old broom handle or an old hockey stick that's nailed into a boot and then covered with uh, nails uh, through bottle caps. And so you bang it up and down. It's like a giant rattle. It's a percussion instrument. Okay. Um, it's a great part of a Newfoundland kitchen party. Uh, yeah, it has, a, it has an older tradition, but Newfoundlanders uh, have made it their own and they love a good party. And so they need, they need musical instruments. And the ugly stick is one that anyone can play. <laughs> such a funny name for it. That's great. I was forgot to ask you, um, what's the origin of the fra- of, of Will-O-The-Wisp? I've always known it. I first heard it in, in The Sound of Music. <laughs> yeah. um, but what is the Will-O-The-Wisp? The Will-O-The-Wisp is like a jackie lantern. So a Will-O-The-Wisp or a jackie lantern, or in Latin it's Ignis Fatuus, a false light. Um, in Dutch it's Dwalichten. It's, uh, it, it pops up in different parts of the world. Uh, w- there are all kinds of legends. There's a story about where the will o' the wisp gets its name, and that will was a was a blacksmith who entered into a bargain with the the devil. And at the end of his life, when he was a go off, he was due to go off and spend eternity with the devil. By that point, he had so annoyed that the devil that the devil wouldn't let him into hell. So he was, but because he had made a deal with the devil, he couldn't get into heaven either. So he was kind of doomed to wander um, halfway between the two for eternity. And that's one of the explanations for where the will o' the wisp gets his name. He had a little burning wisp of paper that would uh, help him guide his way. Wow. Um, if people want to read everything that you're doing, um, you've got a website. Yeah, the easiest way to find us and the work that we're doing in Newfoundland and Labrador is to go to ichblog.ca, ichblog.ca, or you can Google Living Heritage Podcast, and you can find our Living Heritage Podcast and download it on iTunes. Great. Um, while we're on that subject, Kristen, where can people find out and read your fabulous blogs and what you're up to? Well, for Heritage Saskatchewan, you can go to www.heritagesask.ca to see what we're up to, as well as our Facebook page, or you can follow us on Twitter, which is at Heritage Sask. 
Um, and then for, I mean, my blog, which is just my own, that's not really connected with my work, is from thegap.com. Would you uh, read uh, to a Wood Mountain poet? As I said earlier, I just found about I found out about Andrew Signaski visiting the Wood Mountain Museum and then reading his poetry and finding out whatever I could about him. And his poetry just sticks with me so much, and I just sometimes find myself writing stuff, and I, I, I address it to him. It's sort of like he's... I'm talking to him about this landscape that we both grew up in, that we sort of share, and he's gone now, but I'm sort of... Um, I'm asking him things, I guess, about, like, what is this place, you know, and trying to figure it out, so... To a Wood Mountain Poet. Sugnaski, or can I call you Andy? Not Andrew, but Andy, as they still call you back in Wood Mountain, where I first heard of you at the Ranch Rodeo Museum, but I could not buy your poetry there, out of print. Andy, you were already a year dead by that time, though I didn't know that, of course, knew nothing about you at all. Just a name that I remembered. It was still some time before I actually read your poems and found I had known them all along, somehow. Andy, you were closer to all this history than I was, could speak to them at the trail's end, where the blue smoke hung heavy and the stream of bullshit flowed smooth. But sprinkled in bullshit, there was always truth spoken outright or to be gleaned. Andy, you could speak to Saparlo and Lacane and the Romanians with the old country still on their tongues and the Lakota who remembered Sitting Bull as if they'd starved next to him themselves that winter in 1879 when they had to eat the horses and still starved anyway. Sugnaski, you could tell the stories of people and places in a way I never can for it was closer then, more immediate. Now it recedes further and further. Wood Wood Mountain is deader than you remember, though alive still. I am left only with ghosts, summoned from your stanzas, their whispers more faint with each passing year. Your ghost knows I am poor, as I know it. Kristen, thank you. Good to see you again. Thanks, Kevin. Dale, thank you. Good to finally meet you. Yes, thank you very much. Safe travels to both of you. Hey, thanks for listening. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. It's so exciting to see Sascapes being downloaded by a global audience. Remember, if you're in Saskatchewan and have a story that needs to be heard, contact me about how you can become a sponsor. Stories from our past and our present, they're all waiting to be told from here in the land of the living skies. So, until next time...